Well, let's turn now to God's Word. Our reading is found in Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 16, and we're going to read the first 15 verses. Luke 16, verse 1. Let's hear God's Word. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe the master, my master? Three thousand litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it fifteen hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? Thirty tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it twenty-four. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Well, again, before we come to look at God's word, let's uh, pray. Gracious Father, we ask for your spirit to help us to enlighten our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Your word is reliable. It is flawless. And we thank you that we can rest the whole of our lives upon it. But Lord, we also acknowledge that we need your spirit to open your word to us. For your word is spiritually discerned. And so we seek your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, excuse me. Now when we're preaching... Uh, one of the subjects which the preacher naturally and often steer clears of, well, it's money, isn't it? 
particularly money in relation to giving to the church. Uh, I suppose the reason that preachers uh, do that is because it's too much of a contentious issue. It's too much of a subject uh, which will raise the blood pressure of most of our hearers and potentially antagonise them against us. So preachers can be hesitant to preach on the subject of money. But interestingly, the Bible doesn't dodge this issue. In fact, the Bible in general, and Luke's Gospel in particular, they place great emphasis on this subject of handling money. You see, how we manage our possessions, how we manage our property and our wealth, it's important. It's important. In particular, how we give is vital. So with all that in mind, I want this evening to look at this remarkable, remarkable parable of Jesus as found, as found at the beginning of Luke chapter 16. This parable of what I shall call the parable of the shrewd manager. But why, why do I say that this parable in particular is remarkable? Well, I'm not sure if you're like me, but this parable, at least at first sight, this parable, it seems to be altogether shocking, doesn't it? You see, the manager within this story, if not at the very beginning, at least by the end of the story, he is dishonest, isn't he? Isn't that true? We read that. So why is Jesus commending this dishonest manager as an example for us to follow? Why is that? Well, hopefully, as we work our way through uh, this parable, we'll come to appreciate precisely why. Uh, therefore, this evening, we shall, we shall do two things. This morning, I had four headings uh, to make up for that going beyond the norm. I'm going to have just two uh, headings this evening. Uh, first, uh, we shall consider the story itself in order to get our heads around what is actually happening within it. And then secondly, we will simply draw out three important spiritual principles from it. So that's where we're going this evening. Firstly then, <clears throat> the perplexing story itself. Actually, in reality, the basic story which Jesus tells is relatively simple for us to understand. We have here, don't we, a wealthy landowner, and the landowner employs a manager to look after his vast estate. Uh, now, this manager may have had many things to do for the landowner, but one of his primary duties was to rent out the land to tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers would give, at the end of each year, they would give a share of their crops in exchange for use of the land. In other words, this manager, well, he would negotiate on behalf of his landowner, he would negotiate commercial agreements with the tenant farmers. And he would also, in accordance with these agreements, he would collect the landowner's share of the crops from the tenant farmer 
when the harvest was over. All very, very straightforward. However, however, the manager in Jesus' story is not very good at his job. We see this in verse 1, don't we? Uh, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, I don't think that this man was dishonest at this stage in the story. I think it's clearly that he was that he was merely incompetent. Why do I say that? Well, if he was guilty of theft or of fraud, then surely he would have faced criminal charges, or, or at the very least, he would have been instantly dismissed and not given time to get the books in order, as we see in verse 2. The rich man called to him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. So at this point, at this point, this man was not so much dishonest, he was just simply incompetent. He was inept. He was an inefficient steward, not up to the job. Therefore, as far as the landowner was concerned, he simply had to go. No bones about it. His time was up. Now, as you can imagine, particularly if you've ever faced redundancy yourself, the manager was shell-shocked, wasn't he? He wasn't a lazy person. He was simply incompetent. So he didn't relish the prospect of being out of work. He also didn't think himself capable of hard physical labour. And he certainly didn't want to receive any charity from anyone. So in verse 3 we read the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So this man, well he comes up with a very, very clever idea. He'll use the time he has before he has to show the books to the landowner. He'll use the time he has in order to win friends among the tenant farmers. These friends will then look after him when he's out of work. That's his plan. Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now this clever scheme is seen being worked out if you look in verses eight, 5 to 8. Verses 5 to 8. Of course, it was quite in order, wasn't it, for, for the terms of the agreements with the tenant farmers to be changed. For example, if there had been a period of bad weather, then they would be reduced accordingly. That's only fair. But in the story, in the story, the manager's plan is to pretend to carry out very generous instructions received from the landowner. Instructions which result in all the rents owned by the tenant farmers, owed by the tenant farmers, all the rents being substantially reduced. It's dishonest, isn't it? It's dishonest. But imagine the reaction of the farmers. Clearly they would eagerly accept the new terms. So you can imagine, can't you, the excited buzz going around the village as each farmer clasped tightly hold of his wonderful new contract. 
There would be celebration. There would be rejoicing. The coming year would be now so much easier for them to face. And of course, they would all think very highly indeed of the kind, generous landowner and his faithful manager. Wow. Now, it would not be long before the landowner himself would hear all this commotion going on. And soon he would find out just what his useless manager had done. But think about it. What could he do? What could he do? If he reversed the contracts, well, that would put an end, wouldn't it? To all the celebration and rejoicing. Even worse than that, it would make him to be the most unpopular man in town. Cannot really do that, can he? No. He can only accept what has been done by his manager... And grudgingly accept all the praise he so undeservedly receives. Now can you see, can you see why the landowner then goes on and commends, perhaps reluctantly, the manager for being very, very clever. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted Shrewdly. That's the story. Very straightforward story, really. Now, the landowner, let's look now at the three principles. The landowner, and certainly Jesus, well, they are not commending the manager for his dishonesty, but they are commending him for his shrewdness, for his cleverness. You see, he has cleverly used his position and his job, hasn't he, in order to win friends who would last well after his current job and position have ended. Well, says Jesus, well, says Jesus, we need to be, as God's people, we need to be just like that with regard to our own lives and to our own possessions. The end of verse 8 and verse 9, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that statement by Jesus is the is the point of this parable it's the punchline so to speak but what precisely is Jesus telling us to do it's all very well may saying that's the point of the parable but what does it mean <coughs> well let's turn and consider secondly and finally the three spiritual principles of this story three principles which we can learn from this parable the first principle is the principle of stewardship. Principle of stewardship. Clearly in the story we're to identify with the manager and even to imitate him in his shrewdness, that is, not in his dishonesty. In a sense, the parallel is clear, isn't it? God 
can be identified with the rich landowner. And we are managers entrusted by God with his property. This world around us and all that we have. So we're required, aren't we, to be good stewards for the short while in which we live within this world. You see, there's a danger, a real danger, that we can talk about our earnings and our property and our possessions. But the truth is, all that we have and all that we receive are simply gifts from God while we live. We're simply stewards, looking after what God has given us until we pass on the baton, so to speak, to those who will follow us. We're simply stewards. Notice how in Genesis, back in Genesis 2 verse 15, how Adam and Eve are placed in a garden for them to work it and to take care of it. Effectively, they're managers of God's estate, aren't they? In Genesis 1 verse 28, God gives them specific instructions on how to do that. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's what Adam and Eve were given and told to do. But even within this now fallen world, we still have that responsibility. In a way, it's led to human enterprise, hasn't it? It's led to technology, it's led to civilization, And in some ways, we've done very, very well out of it, haven't we? But nevertheless, we do not own the world... Any more than that manager in the parable owned any part of the landowner's vast estate. Therefore, what we do with the world's resources, what we do with our own money, what we do with our own houses and our own possessions is subject to God's accountability. We're stewards. We're to use all that we have for the glory of God alone. That's the principle. There are good examples of this within the Bible, aren't there? Think of those wealthy women who supported Jesus during his earthly ministry. Think of Joseph of Arimathea, who gave up his own tomb for Jesus, even if in the end it was only for two nights. Of course, good stewardship doesn't necessarily mean giving away everything we own. Though the rich young ruler of Luke chapter 18, uh, there, was no act, there was actually no other way for him, was there? But good stewardship is not simply a question of just giving away everything we have. No, we're to use what we have in the best way possible for the Lord. We're to use our money and our houses and our cars and our time all for God's glory. One day, every one of us will relinquish our posts here on earth. Every one of us will hand over our responsibility as managers of God's property to others. Every one of us will stand before God in order to give an account of how we have done as his people in this world. And the question is, are we being good stewards of the Lord's property? 
are we? Tough question, isn't it? Well, let's consider the second principle, which comes from this parable. This is the principle of sharing. We've seen the principle of stewardship. The second principle is the principle of sharing. How exactly are we to manage our money and our possessions and our time if we know that we're only stewards of God? And more pertinently, just like the shrewd manager within the parable, that our stewardship will soon end. How are we to handle that which God has given to us? How are we to handle, manage our possessions? How are we to be good stewards? Well, what did the shrewd manager do? What did he do? He used the opportunity he had to benefit him in the future. That's what he did, isn't it? In other words, we're to make investments now that will benefit us in the future. That's what the shrewd manager does. That's what he's commended for. And that is what we are to do. We are to make investments now that will benefit us in the future. Investments that will last forever. So what lasts forever? What lasts forever? Possessions don't, do they? But people do. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, in heaven, <clears throat> there will be this vast community of Christian believers, those who have put their faith alone in Jesus Christ, Come to God in repentance and faith. There will be this vast community of Christian believers, all worshipping and serving the Lord. So imagine the scene. Put yourself there. There you are, in heaven, sitting on your chair outside your home. Perhaps it's a rocking chair, I don't know. But there you are, sitting on your chair outside your home in heaven. When along the road comes a missionary supported by you through the church. He's filled with joy to see you. Next comes a group of converts, one through his witness, and others taught and built up in their faith by him. They all crowd around, don't they, to thank you. In a real sense, they owe their eternal destiny to your giving. Next, there's that poor Christian who found your act of generosity such an encouragement to his faith. Next, there's the third world pastor who receives books and practical gifts through your giving to the local church. Because of that giving, he was able to work much more effectively. And around him is his congregation who were spiritually established and fed by his ministry. Next, there's someone who was so struck by all the time and help you gave them that it led ultimately to their conversion. Next, there's someone who was so encouraged by your practical help as they were going through such a difficult time 
of doubt and depression. All of them are overjoyed to see you. You're welcomed and thanked. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Do you see it? Now that is real investment, isn't it? That is lasting investment. These are the things which will last forever and which will never, ever be forgotten. So why do we run around after things in this world which will not last? Think about it. When you've been in heaven, even for one day, do you think you'll care whether or not you had a flash car in this world? I don't think so. Do you think you'll care whether or not you had a fantastic collection of DVDs or CDs or books or clothes or whatever? I don't think you will. So why do we spend so much time and effort piling up what will soon perish or be forgotten? Why? More importantly, the Lord is watching us. He's taking notice of exactly how we manage what he's given to us. And depending on what he sees will be the responsibility we're given in heaven. Notice verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will, tr who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? In heaven, we will own property. It won't be taken away from us. We will have it in perpetuity. Surely this is real investment, isn't it? Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Of course, good management in God's eyes is very different from good management in the world's eyes. Isn't that true? The world may see the church giving money to this cause and to that cause. The world may see the church investing in this enterprise or in that enterprise. They may see no good in it whatsoever. They may see it simply as poor use of money. They even may think we're crazy giving our money as churches and as individuals to certain causes. In fact, that's precisely how the Pharisees looked upon what Jesus said in, after this parable. See this in verses 14 and 15, don't we? They were sneering at Jesus. That's what we read. Think also of Mary in John chapter 12, pouring out that expensive perfume upon Jesus. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's what Judas sneers, isn't it? But the point is, what matters is not what others think, but what God thinks. The end of verse 15, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. 
God wants to ma- people to manage his property in his way, not in the world's way. We're not accountable to this world, are we? We are accountable to God. Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's real investment. But there's a final principle uh, we need to look at. The principle of single-mindedness. We see, we've seen the principle of stewardship. We've seen the principle of sharing. Well, now we have the principle of single-mindedness. Did you notice it within our passage? Did you? It's the one verse which I've not so far considered or mentioned. Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So let me ask you, (coughs) what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? What do you worship? A good test of what is really important to us is to look at our bank statements or at our credit card statements. That, I think, is probably the ultimate test of what we worship. So the question is, are our minds and our hearts set on this world or the next? Are we laying up treasure in heaven or on earth? Do we serve God or money? What's more important to us? What we own or God's smile of approval? You see, it's not a matter of how much we give, is it? No. Think of that poor widow who had nothing except a couple of tiny coins, just pennies. But she was commended by Jesus because she knew that all that she had belonged to the Lord. The rich, who threw into the offering box vast quantities of wealth, they were not commended at all. They simply saw their giving, didn't they, as payment from their own wealth in order to gain approval. Not from the Lord so much, but from others around them. In other words, it's not what we give, but how we give. Now, sadly, at this point, I must mention a false teaching, which is widespread in the West today. I've been to Nigeria now uh, to teach pastors there five times, and this is rampant across Africa, this false teaching. It goes something like this. Money is a sign of God's blessing. The more faithful you are, the richer you will be. The more you give, the more you will then receive in material wealth. But that teaching is a lie, isn't it? That teaching is totally alien to the Bible. Think about it. Jesus was a poor man. Paul was a poor man. In fact, in New Testament times, faithfulness to God often meant directly it meant poverty. 
Hebrews 10 verse 34 tells us, speaking to those who are faithful to the Lord. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. It's the same truth, isn't it? But notice that attitude. Notice that singleness of mind. Losing money through persecution and faithfulness. Well, it was actually not a problem for them, was it? Isn't that amazing? Would you react like that? They joyfully accepted it, we read. Wow! Are we, are we that single-minded in our attitude toward our possessions? I wish I was. You can keep it. You can keep it, they're saying. Why? Why can you keep it? Because we have treasure in heaven, better and lasting possessions. You see, they're not looking for an earthly reward, only for a heavenly one. What a challenge that is for us today. So do we have our priorities sorted out like that? Do we? Are we single-minded in our attitude toward our possessions? What or whom do you love? Money or the Lord? What do you live for? This world or the world to come? Yes, we should, of course we should, enjoy the material things which God has graciously given to us. They're truly blessings from the Lord, aren't they? But we must hold them loosely. We must be open-handed, so to speak. That's the lesson, that's, our, that's the challenge. Our treasure is in heaven. Not here in this world. In fact, our treasure ultimately is God himself, isn't it? Our God is the end of the journey, as one hymn puts it. He will give us a rich welcome. He is our shield and our very great reward. Well, may he have all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for this parable. Lord, it is a very, very hard parable for us to understand, but also to learn from. We know our own hearts. We know that even as your people, even those who are saved by grace, we know that there is still that remaining sin within us. And we struggle against such things. Help us, Lord, to be open-handed. Help us to be those who are good stewards, realising that all that we have is from your gracious hand. Help us to be those who share what we have for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, that we may enjoy that rich welcome in heaven. Help us to be single-minded. Help us to love you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Help us to realise that our reward is not the things of this world, but ultimately it's you, him, you yourself. And that one day we will see the King in all his beauty. Help us to be your people. We pray this for your glory. Amen.